time for Lickin' On Lending. Welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Lickin' On Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news, all related to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646-716-4972. Now here's your host of Lickin' On Lending, David Lickin. Let's begin. Welcome, everybody. It is Monday, September 20th, 2021. Again, this podcast is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals, as well as all the community that we already have. We're so grateful to have you as our listener. Again, our commitment to you is to bring you timely information in an audio format that you can listen to anytime, anywhere. As you regular listeners know, the first half of the podcast is dedicated to covering a lot of issues going on in the industry. And then we dedicate the Hot Topic segment to what is going on. And I am very excited about the Hot Topic segment today. You guys are in for a treat. We have back on the microphone. Taylor Stork, he's a CMB, Certified Mortgage Banker, and then he is also the Chief Operating Officer at Developers Mortgage. We're going to be discussing a lot and focusing on servicing regulations, the mortgage environment, changes in the post-COVID world. So glad to have Taylor Stork joining us, and then we have another added surprise. Joining me on Live on the Microphone is Jack Nunnery, the past president of the Texas Capital Bank, and he just retired He's looking for something to do, so I invited him in today on this topic. Here's why. Because he, like Taylor, has a passion for our industry and has a strong, passionate opinion about many things going on in the industry. He couldn't talk about it when he was president of Texas Capital Bank because he's a banker. He works for a bank and all the different things that he has to avoid. But he's retired. He's coming out, so to speak, and joining us in the interview. And hopefully, maybe, just maybe, we might see a lot more of Jack in the future. But anyway, we're getting started with this interview in the Hot Topic segment. Hey, make sure to get over to industrysyndicate.com. Listen to all the podcasts that are there. Great group of podcasts. Also, I'm joining up with Josh Pitts. Going to be working with him on another podcast. Very exciting things that are going on. The world of podcasting is growing, exploding. I was just looking at some recent statistics on podcasting. Folks, it's here. It's real. It's happening in a big, big way. That's why we have the sponsors we do, and we carefully select our sponsors. We have the Mortgage Bankers Association of America. We also have the Finastra Fusion Mortgage Bot Solution, Marketing Experience, and the Power of Fully Integrated Approach to the Mortgage Lending that simplifies the mortgage borrowing experience and streamlines the process for the employees. It's a great system, a wonderful tool, and they've been sponsors for so many, many years. And I'm just excited to share with you. Not only that, it's the thought leadership that they bring to the mortgage technology world. They're the third largest fintech company. And I said that the other day, and they go, I think we're now number two. We're thrilled to have Finastra as a sponsor. Also, Lenders One, as well as the Mortgage Collaborative. Both of these collaboratives are great ways for you to connect with your peers in a setting. You should have heard our guest, Taylor Stork, at the Lenders One conference. I sat in the audience and listened to him just just absolutely rant on several issues. I go, God, I got to have him back. So that's why he's here today. And I think he too may become one of those voices you'll hear regularly on the podcast because I love intelligent rants. We're going to get some of that. But when you go to these conferences, belong to one of these co-ops, you get a lot of great information. You're not going to get through the MBA through that. That is not to say you should join one of these in replace of the MBA. You should become a member of the MBA. 
You may not agree with everything they do and all the different positions they take. However, they are instrumental. We need to have one voice that goes in and on the hill for us. And then support those or allow your differences to be heard through the Lenders One as well as the Mortgage Collaborative. There's also another one out there, Community Mortgage Lenders of America. We're also pleased to have them as a sponsor. But when you're looking at technology, be sure to check out Incelerate. Josh Friend just did a really good webinar. I'm going to make sure for those of you that want to get a copy of the webinar that you missed last week, I believe it was last Thursday, it was good. Some of the statistics that go into Consumer Direct and the importance of how you connect with people was brought out in that podcast. Contact me, and I'll make sure you get a link to that or contact Josh Friend over at Accelerate by going to their website. Also, Knowledge Coop, really pleased with the learning management system that Ken Perry and the team has built, as well as Mobility MMI, Mortgage Market Intelligence, and Modex. Both of these companies do a great job of helping lenders connect with the right LOs with empirical data, really what's going on in the space. And finally, our newest sponsor, SnapDocs. Love these guys. And what they're doing, be sure to check out last week's interview. It was excellent and focused in on SnapDocs. And again, thank you to everyone at SnapDocs, especially Amy Moses, for their support of our podcast. And also special thank you goes out to Rob, Les, Alice, Alan, Matt, and joining us today, where that special thing goes out to Jack Nunnery. Welcome, everybody, to the Looking on Lending Hot Topic segment. So excited to have you here. It is September 20th. And we have a special guest joining us here today, actually two special guests. Our special guest on the Hot Topics segment is Taylor Stork, Certified Mortgage Banker, Chief Operating Officer for Developers Mortgage. You heard him on. He gave us a, some insights into his brilliance and his passion and his soapbox expound on topics. When he was on with us, we were at the Lenders One Conference. And then I got to sit in these sessions and I listened to Taylor again just getting on and doing some rants on some topics. And I go, man, I want to record that. Wait a minute. I have a podcast. I can bring them on live. So we're bringing back Taylor Stark. Taylor, so good to have you here with us. Hey, Dave. I'm glad to be here. Joining me on the microphone today is a long stand for being friend and a client, but more friend. I got to work with him when he was at Texas Capital Bank. I'm speaking none other than Jack Nunnery, who recently retired. <laughs> Heard me talk about that if you listen to the first part of the podcast. But Jack Nunnery, good to have you on the podcast here with me. We talked about this. You joining me here, and you're here. Well, thank you, David, and I'm excited to be here with you. Yeah, we should say we had Jack on as a guest when he was at Texas Capital Bank. It was on May 20th, 2019, and you did a segment interview on us. Are you prepared for digital mortgage solutions? That was a great – and looking at the downloads of that one, it's still a popular podcast, and I think it's relevant, Jack. So. You always stay relevant, and I'm really excited to have you join in. And, Jack, we were talking before this. You got excited about the questions we're going to be talking with Taylor about and because it, it's so relevant. We have five primary questions we're going to try to go through. I'm telling everyone I'm speaking on this coming Friday in Houston, and I'm going to be using this hot topic segment as my content because there's so much good packed in here. So, Taylor, let's get into it. And we're talking about CRAs for IMBs, and we've recently heard – the Treasury, as well as the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, NCRC, they both suggested a need for CRA requirements for IMBs. And there's three states, Massachusetts, Illinois, and New York, that have implemented or are in the process of implementing some of this. So, wow, how does this address the racial inequality and the wealth gap? And how does it affect, most importantly, the IMBs, many of whom are loyal listeners? 
So this is a very interesting topic, and I think we're going to hear more and more and more and more about this. I had a chance to hear Dave Stevens talk about it last week on a CMB call. Yeah, he's good. He's always got good commentary on that, and I would love to go back, and we need to get a link in our show notes. We'll find that, folks, and get a link to that interview. If you could find that, Taylor, so we could share that interview with our listeners, that would be awesome. Yeah, I'd be happy to. CRA is an interesting animal. First and foremost, let me just say out of the gate that I think CRA is a great thing, particularly based on the, the CRA, the programs that were put together in the 70s and still do have in many ways some real fundamental issues to address as a country. We had mm-hmm. banks that would go into a marketplace and they would take money out of that marketplace in the form of deposits. They would get insurance from the FDIC to protect those deposits. They would have access to the federal home loan banking system to borrow money at extraordinarily cheap rates, Mm -hmm. but then they would only lend their money back into certain neighborhoods that were generally much more affluent. And if you look at maps today, you take like St. Louis, for example, Mm -hmm. if you take old CRA redlining maps from pre-1970 and compare that to the maps today of where low to moderate income tracts are located, they're virtually a mirror image. So CRA was created to make sure that banks reinvested those dollars back into the communities that needed them most. And so I think CRA is a great thing. It was created for a good reason. And it started in the Carter administration. If you go way back, the reason I went, I did a big dive into this and I was on Fox News with Huckabee back when Huckabee had his segment. And I was really interested about that. But where things went wrong was in the Clinton administration where they started using this and things started heading in a direction to expand home ownership that wasn't so good and got us ultimately, I think, one of the factors that led into the crisis, the housing crisis. Oh, I totally agree with you. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And so looking at CRA for IMBs, and, mm-hmm. and I understand understand why agencies are looking at this. Massachusetts passed a law and is enforcing it right now. Illinois passed a law and is enforcing it right now. New York, they've passed the legislation. It's waiting for the governor's signature, depending on who the governor is today. That's so true. here's the issue with CRA for IMBs. And these are my concerns. When you take a look at the IMB model, IMBs aren't taking deposits out of a community. They aren't benefiting from the FDIC's insurance. They aren't benefiting from access to the federal home loan banking system window. And you couple that with the fact that the Urban Institute recently came out and basically said that IMBs are by far and away the greatest source of access to credit for Mm -hmm. moderate income borrowers. They published it in their reports. It was well-researched and well-documented in the IMB report that was put out by CHLA recently. So look at the fact that right now today, IMBs are doing the vast majority of lending for borrowers in the communities that the CRA proposals would otherwise target. We're already solving the need. We're already making the loans. It's the the one and only thing we all do in order to make a living for our companies, right? right? So what exactly does adding new regulation and new compliance burdens actually accomplish? That becomes the better question. I think there's probably 10 different ways to debate this issue. You can debate it on studies. You can debate it on statistics. You can debate it on all kinds of different things. But at the end of the day, I would suggest that the focus of, because ultimately, whether it's a regulation or any other initiative, ultimately, it's going to cost money, right? They're going to put resources into managing it. Bureaucrats do what they love to do. Politicians do what they're good at doing, which is pass laws and then attempt to enforce them. How do you enforce those laws? Typically, you enforce them in the mortgage space through exams, regulatory reviews, 
Sometimes they result in fines or different types of admonishments. So the question becomes, if you have an IMB system that is already leading the way in this area of lending, does it make sense to add more compliance and Mm -hmm. administrative burden to small, privately owned, independent companies that generally don't have huge compliance departments in the first place? Now, is it going to have the unintended consequence? Jack, you know CRA. You were in a bank for years. Yeah, certainly, David. I sat on a fair lending CRA committee at the bank that I work for. And you know what really raises my eyebrows here is CRA coupled with fair lending, right? Because we're regulated by fair lending in the independent mortgage banking community. So when does the questions begin to get asked that says, well, we have the CRA requirement, we have measured you against it, IMB, you are deficient. You need to start advertising on media in markets that are the low to median income markets. So Taylor, not only is it the administrative cost of preparing for exams and and monitoring your progress against the reg, when you fold this into fair lending, it even becomes more of a challenge to the extent that, well, the reason for your numbers in these target assessment areas, census tracts, is because you're not advertising, you're not putting flyers in front of the low to uh, median or moderate income borrowers. So now you've got this whole exercise changing your marketing approach so that you would have success in an LMI market. Jack, I'm so glad you brought up marketing because I want to touch on that. And I think there's some things here that we need to bring together. So right now today, up and down the East Coast, there are states that require loan officers to live within 100 miles of the branch that they work for. So I want you to think about that for a second. We know just from having been in this business for a long time, most of the people that you end up doing mortgages for are going to be people that you have some level of relationship with, right? So maybe that's a referral through a realtor. Maybe that is somebody that through your church. Maybe it's somebody that because you're part of a a particular community. People tend to work with loan officers, at least that are somehow connected to us and our community and are local to us. So here becomes the challenge. If I have a company that is located in, I don't know, pick a state, Ohio, and if that company is licensed to do loans in Pennsylvania, but can't hire a loan officer in Pennsylvania, company doesn't have a branch within 90 miles from that loan officer, meaning that loan officer is not allowed to work remotely. They have to be out of the corporate office. How does an Ohio loan officer create a personal community relationship with a borrower in a low to moderate income community in Pennsylvania? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And I think that personal connection is very important to the LMI borrower. It's interesting this this topic. Dan Carson and I were talking about this earlier today, and the importance of the loan officer. He's with Illibid Mortgage and one of their top producers there and runs a region. And it was really interesting. So you've raised some great questions. The bottom line is, CRA is potentially happening. I want to wrap it up with this one question. 
What did the NBA and what did you hear? Are, what are they doing about this? Where, what's their position on it? I kind of guess and assume. Taylor, what did you hear when you heard Stevens on this? Well, so first and foremost, Stevens no longer represents oh, the NBA, okay. right? He's now a private citizen doing his thing. The impression that I got from the NBA actually came out of a panel that I attended on this topic or on several topics at the Lenders One Summit in Orlando recently. And the impression I got was that this is a state-level issue and, we, and the state-level organization organizations need to focus on calls for action and advocacy at the state level regulators offices and and so forth. But it's not a state level issue because this is a a trend that is sweeping the country. And we see it happening in New York right now. We see New York, they've passed legislation. They just haven't signed it into law. And I have concerns. Hmm. The flip side of this, Dave, before we wrap up is I think there's actually a better way to approach this. Rather than adding regulatory burden saying, hey, we're going to examine you, and if you don't do better than X, you're going to get in trouble, here's the biggest issue. Getting back to the point that I made a moment ago about the marketing and the sales and the fact that people do business with people they know and that are from the community, here's what we really need to do. What we really need to do is focus on generating new loan officers in this business that come from the communities that need to be served in the first place. Right, Because that's where the business is actually going to come from. These borrowers, regardless of which segment of society they come from, borrowers don't walk into mortgage offices and apply for mortgages. Maybe they did once upon a time. They certainly don't walk into my office. The transactions that we obtain, and certainly they walk into banks. That's a whole different business model. But in the IMB space, it's mostly relationship-based or it's computer advertising and direct mail-based, right? So there's kind of two different models. The relationship-based model, these borrowers aren't walking into the office saying, hey, I'm here, I want to apply. These are generally referrals. So if you want to put more capital into the community in the form of lending to low to moderate income borrowers and low to moderate income tracks, we need to put more loan officers in those marketplaces. We need to make it easier for loan officers to get licensed. And we need to make it easier for loan officers to participate in the business by removing restrictions from having them live close to a branch office. And in some states, mandating that they only actually accept the loan application while they are physically in the branch office that they work for, which may be nowhere near the borrower's community in the first place. See, David, therein lies a very important intermediate to long-term strategy for independent mortgage bankers is we talked about diversity in the workplace. Now Mm -hmm. we need diversity in our loan officer, because that's going to help penetrate these LMI markets. And of course, we all want to serve the underserved, but you know, keep in mind that if you have an LMI loan and you're selling to a correspondent aggregator, oftentimes you're going to get 75 to 125 basis points, better execution on that LMI loan, because correspondent aggregators are typically banks and banks view this as a way to help their own CRA numbers is by buying LMI loans from originators. So you've got a financial reward that goes along with diversifying your loan officer uh, mix as well. I want to get on to the next topic because there's so much here. One of the things I enjoyed was you always come up with suggestions. You identify the problem. <laughs> And you always come up in your rant and say, now, here's what we need to do about it. I, I, you had some great points there, and Jack just reinforced them. I think you've got some great suggestions in there. And the story about St. Louis, I have a client that's a bank that acquired another bank that did a lot of CRA lending in there. And we got in and studied that extensively. Boy, were you right. It is CRA is 
a great initiative. We need to stay at the heart of it and not do what the federal government is saving for. We're from the federal government. And we're here to help you. <laughs> anyway, let's get to servicing regulations. Conference of State Bank Supervisors, the CSBS, has proposed more strategic regulations for servicers, which would open them up to new and more stringent oversight at the state level. At the same time, Jenny May has proposed changing the increased balance sheet reserve requirements for servicing eligibility for government loans. So let's get into discussion. How will these two proposals impact the availability of credit in Americans and the ultimate impact on IMBs? I'm very interested in your perspective. Start your rant. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. So this ties right back into the concept of CRA in the first place. Look, I absolutely believe, and I think most people probably believe that we have a wealth gap, that we have to address it. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. there's a lot that we can do. I want to be part of doing the things we can do. But let's take a look at how these different policies impact that wealth gap, right? So if you look at servicing, and I understand the concern. The concern is that a small handful of very large IMBs are beginning to get a large concentration in servicing assets. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that large concentration can create systemic risk. And P.S., by the way, I'm not saying that's not true. There is definitely the potential for systemic yeah. risk. There are ways to mitigate it. And, and Fannie and Freddie are the master servicers. They can pull the servicing anytime they want to. So there are tools and, and levers in place to, to protect against the risk. But sure, there's risk. But what we're talking about from the CSBS is not focused on the big 15 they're right. IMBs, but they're really not IMBs the way that you and I think of IMBs. They're generally publicly held companies or owned by billionaires or backed by private capital from Wall Street. So mm -hmm. when you talk about your typical IMB, that privately, independently owned and operated in a mortgage bank, what we're talking about is really the bread and butter of the mortgage business. So if you take a look at servicing and if you make it more and more difficult for IMBs to service loans and retain servicing on loans, what you're ultimately doing by lumping them in with the big 15 or the big 10 or the big five or the big whatever, what you're ultimately doing is you're increasing the cost and the burden of servicing on the smaller IMB. So what does that do? What that does is it encourages IMBs to exit the servicing business entirely. Mm -hmm. And as they exit the business, you're going to see an increased concentration of that servicing amongst the big five, 10, or 15, thus therefore reinforcing and creating a self-fulfilling prophecy that actually creates greater concentrated systemic risk. And what does that do for the borrower? Here's what it does. As servicing is held by fewer IMBs, and more of the large companies, the value of that servicing is fundamentally going to get smaller, right? Because you have fewer buyers. It's basic supply-demand economics. I'm not an economist and I'm not a politician, but basic rules here go into effect that says if fewer people want this thing, then it's less valuable. If it's less valuable, you'll pay less money for it. If you pay less money for it, that's going to translate through to the borrower in the form of a higher interest rate. Right? Because the less a loan is worth, the higher interest rate the borrower ultimately receives for it. By creating higher interest rates for borrowers, what are we doing? We're pushing higher costs all the way through the system, ultimately to the borrower that is in the LMIT and LMIB category, the low to moderate income borrower, yeah. low to moderate income category, the very borrower that we're trying to increase access to credit to through the CRA initiatives. So the idea that the left hand of our political machine and bureaucratic machine and regulatory machines is saying we need to make servicing 
more complicated and more expensive. And their right hand is saying, oh, we need to do these other things. It's just confounding to me. And, and I'd love to hear Jack's thoughts on it because sometimes it makes me twist my head sideways and uh, I don't know where to well, go from there. Let's open the door, Jack. What do you think about all that? Well, I'm especially concerned about this, Taylor, because we've already seen patterns over the years where GDMA servicing becomes highly illiquid in the marketplace and very difficult to trade. And when you start whittling down the number of participants in the GDMA market, I think all you do is undermine the liquidity associated with the GDMA servicing asset. And at some point, we're going to be down to four or five as you said, mega independent mortgage banks, publicly traded, that are out there, you know, looking to continue to acquire JDMA servicing. Certainly, money center banks are not leading the way here, and I wouldn't look for them to come back in the market if there was a weakening in the number of smaller IMBs that could service JDMA loans. So I think you put the whole market at risk if you begin to pair off mortgage bankers that wanted to participate and service Jenny Bay loans, but now can't because of the 250% capital risk rate. Jack, you brought up the banks, and I think you bring up a good point that I overlooked and, and failed to mention. We already drove the banks out of the business. We fundamentally yeah, we told them to leave, right? So first we attacked them with False Claims Act lawsuits or potential lawsuits, yep. and we watched Chase go, okay, we're out. We don't want to face false claims. That's trouble damages based on a law that goes back to selling donkeys to the Union (laughs) Army in 1862, I think, or something thereabouts. Then we said, well, Basel III, let's change the rules on how banks can even book these assets. And the rest of them said, okay, well, we don't want to, we can't book the asset anymore, so we better get out. And so the banks have led the way exiting FHA lending because of the constraints that we put in place. It's one of the main reasons that IMBs have had the opportunity to step up to the plate and become the leading lenders in the low to moderate income areas because a lot of low to moderate income borrowers take FHA loans. We solve that problem for the marketplace. We fill that gap. But if you make it more difficult to retain servicing, you're going to make the loans that IMBs do less valuable, which makes the interest rates that those very borrowers receive go higher, which makes it harder for those borrowers to borrow money and buy houses, which is going to continue to contribute to the massive wealth gap where a white homeowner, what's the statistic that came out from MBA this morning or yesterday? They have five times more assets, five times more net worth. (laughs) than uh, a homeowner of African-American descent, I think is the the number that came out from MBA this morning on their announcement. We have to break that cycle. And breaking that cycle happens by making more loans and having more participation in the marketplace, not less. Yeah. And how do you drive people out of it? It's regulation. You bring in more regulations, you get more auditors going. And finally, you just do what the banks did. You're like, screw it, I'm out. Banks aren't going to come back at 250% capital risk weight. Look, inside of a bank, and I've worked for banks, Inside of a bank, it's all about your return on equity. Your biggest competition is not who competes with you outside your door. It's the division that's located right down the hallway from you. That's and if right. you have a 18% ROE and they've got a 32% ROE, the bank should, in the interest of their shareholders, be allocating resources to the business with a higher ROE. And at 250% risk weight, you're crushing the bank's return on equity. But the one thing about this is if this were to become law, can you imagine the amount of servicing that would be dumped Mm. in the marketplace in a short 
amount of time and what that would do to the underlying values of GDMA MSRs? Yeah, we crash the system. I mean, it's, it's the unintended corrections when we start trying to just oversteer, and I think that's what's going on. I want to move on to one of the other ones, which I thought was really good, is you brought up the question. So from your perspective, what should lenders do to prepare for, and how can they ensure success in the post-COVID world? Wait, I thought I was asking that question. I was hoping I was going to get the answer out of you. What do I do oh, next? Jack and I have some opinions uh, on that. But how are look, you preparing? It's a moving target, to say the least. I think that technology is going to be a huge, huge, huge impact on us like it never has been before. Right. I think right. that we're going to get much better at doing things virtually. I think that we're going to have to find ways to streamline our operations so that the businesses can fundamentally be sound. We can't support a mortgage industry if it costs $8,000 to manufacture a mortgage. Right. And in a model where we have one or two or three credit decisions being made in a day by an underwriter where the same underwriters are earning mm -hmm. exorbitant salaries, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the money isn't earned and deserved. What I am suggesting yeah. is our fundamental process needs to be overhauled so that it can be right. more efficient across the board so that we can drive the expenses down so that we can serve more borrowers and we can put people into homes more, more quickly and more easily at a lower cost to the borrowers themselves. So I think the biggest thing that I'm trying to keep my eye on post-COVID is it's a couple of things. One is how to drive expenses down for manufacturing mortgages. Two is the ever-changing need for products. I think right. that we're going to see a new focus on alternative products, niche things in the non-qualified mortgage space, things within the agencies, in the kind of niche space within the agencies from Heckam purchases to home style renovations, 203K, um, home ready, home possible. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity, particularly as we see this housing market just get itself exhausted, working its way through capacity and supply. I think that we're going to see a lot more creativity on the part of originators, niche products, both yeah. non-QM and agency products to bring buyers into the market that hadn't necessarily been a buyer two years ago, or to create inventory opportunities that otherwise didn't exist, such as two or 3K home home lending and home style home lending. So I, I think those are going to be major things to, to watch out for in the next 18 months. Yeah, I, I want to move right into the, the fourth point is envisioning technology and the changes that are happening. What's capturing your attention out there uh, right now? And what are you envisioning how technology is going to change the industry from your perspective? I'm not the expert on this, but in my opinion, there are fundamentally two things that slow down a mortgage. The first one is right this minute, getting that appraisal done. And I'm hearing horror stories of appraisals taking six weeks, eight weeks in some marketplaces, as well as appraisers themselves marking up the appraisal costs to 600 bucks, $800, just ludicrous numbers because of a fundamental shortage of appraisers and a fundamental shortage of capacity. The second thing is we still, even to this day, after years and years and I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years, our fundamental process to process, <laughs> manufacture, and close a mortgage is that we stare and compare documents. I look at a document, I look at another document, and I say, yeah, they both look the same, and, and then I check a box, and then I pull out the next set of documents and look at one and look at the other and say, yeah, they both look the same, and check a box, right? We do stare and compare. And, and a lot of the delay from the day you apply for a loan to the day you get it closed is ultimately related to getting in line to be stared and compared at or getting in line to one day have your appraisal done, Right. 
So Mm -hmm. I think that technology that's going to have the biggest impact is not going to be foofy looking websites. It's not going to be super sophisticated marketing systems. I think that the thing that's going to be impactful for us in the next 18 months, I hope, is going to be using OCR to look at some documents, using AI to do some of the comparing, simplifying the process of stare and compare so that our workforce can focus more on their knowledge instead of just their eyeballs and actually process through more ultimate work product. And I think the same thing can be said about the appraisal process. There are some really neat tools that exist that I think we'll start to see getting applied into the appraisal space that enables a house or an apartment, a condo, whatever, to work its way through the valuation process itself more quickly and using more automated tools than have historically been the case. And if we can employ those at the front end of a transaction, I think we can get that transaction through half of the process a whole lot faster, if not through the entire process a whole lot faster. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Good. Jack, we've talked about stare and compare. When you brought me in to help you build the correspondent lending division there at Texas Capital Bank, which, by the way, is now over at Andy Peach at PHH, has sold that as you exited. Yep. We talked a lot about this. So your comments on this. Well, I would agree with Taylor. If you're not already using uh, optical character recognition and some level of analytics to compare data lifted from field A or field number 53 or and field 182, I think you're behind the curve and getting further mm-hmm. behind the curve. So if your technology provider does not have an OCR solution that allows for comparative analysis of data right. entered into different fields, then you really need to push your technology provider to get that functionality to you. But David, one of the things that we did, and I thought it was really interesting, is as we took a look at our process and, and put time elements to it, like how long does it take to calculate income on a borrower? Where is your process consuming the most time and the most dollars? Now where you should be trying to apply technology to. Right. And so we did a complete analysis of our processes and understood the actors that were going to be fulfilling that part of the process. So we were able to do a cost analysis through the whole mortgage origination process. I thought that was particularly valuable because now I know where to apply technology to. So technology is great. Process engineering is great. But when you combine the two together, now you get excellence. Yep, that's a great point. You did some very innovative things there within the division. Uh, I want to go to what – I only want to come back if Jack's on because he always seems to agree with the stuff I say, which that works <laughs> for me. I love when Jack disagrees with me because it is a great conversation. He always does so respectfully, but it is really fun to see his perspective. So hopefully we'll have him back on a very, very regular basis. We're going to have you back. But I want to wrap it up with this last question is where should originators be investing their time and resources? I loved you when we talked about getting preparing for this podcast, but share with our listeners, where should originators be investing their time? And resources. I think there's two different questions here built into one, right? So originators yeah. are companies and originators are loan officers. Right, right. And yeah. I want to make sure I distinguish between the two. Back to Jack's point, you may be a gigantic organization with millions of dollars in budget to go out and do process flow review. 
You may be a tiny mom and pop shop where two or three people fundamentally run the entire company. It doesn't really matter your size. You have to invest your time into looking at your workflow and oh. determining where your hangups are and then solving those hangups. And it means you got to invest, if not money, time in reviewing the technologies that are out there. And yes, sometimes yes. it's not even the technologies. Sometimes it's just cleaning up your flow, to be candid. There's a mm -hmm. lot of flow in a lot of places that can be fundamentally cleaned up. But I think that as companies, large and small, it's going to become more and more important that we close loans efficiently than it has been in the past. Because I do think that we're going to see margins compressed. I do think that there's going to be greater competition for every single deal. I do think yep. that we're going to see that, I don't know if it's next month or next year or sometime in our lifetime, but it, it's going to happen and, and we need to be prepared for it. And it's the company that's prepared for it that can be resilient through the compression or through the change so that when they come out on the other end of it, they can take advantage of market opportunities, right? Because the market yeah. opportunity is the company that wasn't prepared for it. As, as far as loan officers go, if I'm a loan officer, I'm focused on a couple of different things. My number one thing is strengthening my network all day long, every single day being in touch, staying in touch, proactively reaching out to people. But the second thing is really education. And I know that just saying the word education probably doesn't really say a lot, but if I'm a loan officer, I'm learning everything I can learn about product. I'm learning everything I can learn about, about the guidelines because the truth is there's a lot of nuance that we've just been able to overlook for the last several years in an environment where we've seen interest rates in the twos. And when interest rates are in the fours and the fives and the sixes, as they may one day be, it's going to be important that you have a better network than your competitor. And that's how you distinguish yourself in what I think is going to become more of a knowledge worker business than it has been in, in years past. Back to the future comes to mind because this is what has been fundamental in the industry all along. But I think what you're saying is we just really need to make sure we keep the main thing, the main thing. And that is those relationships that have gotten us the business. That is just so spot on. And we're talking about workflow processes. I have been selling this, trying to get mortgage bankers' attentions on this forever. And I, I did a speaking tour. One year I agreed to sign up with the group and I spoke all over the nation. Every conference they could get me into, spoke at all of them. And I kept saying, you're in the future. You're going to be more known for your processes than your product or pricing. And I came up with that, but I, I don't know if that was original thought, but it, it's so true. Because he whose process can trump that of your competitor, they're going to have a decided advantage. Because think about long. Think of the appraisal thing. If you're taking six weeks to get an appraisal and someone else has solved that through a process change, and they're getting that appraisal done in a week. Does that not have it in this highly competitive world where you there's hardly any inventory and someone can get this thing closed? It's such an advantage. They'll pay more in the interest rate. They'll pay more in the fees. They want the home. They're not wanting a mortgage. And what we can do to facilitate that is so important. Jack, I'll let you get a thought on this and then wrap it up with you, Taylor, and then we'll call it a podcast. Jack? Okay. Well, David, I think you hit it right on the head, right? Efficient process, good technology, speed to close. And, and then number two, that speed to close is going to help drive a lower cost to originate. And so the investment in technology and process and making sure that those are tightly integrated is going to be the formula for a mortgage bank to be successful as the market recalibrates from 3.5 to 3.8 trillion 
down to what the latest NBA numbers I saw, David, were 2.3, 2.4 trillion. So if you could differentiate yourself in terms of the rapidity of the process without injecting risk and lower the cost to originate, you're going to find yourself in a good position to still be able to compete successfully in exhausted market. Exhausted market. That's so good. Taylor, we got to have you back. I love it. Thank you so much for being here. Taylor, have me back. I'd love to do it again. Oh, we're going to do it. Yeah. We got to get the threesome back here. Uh, you, Jack, and myself will talk about some more issues. You, you hit on so many things and they go, please continue with this. Please continue. You got to see the comments coming in. Jack. David, I've got a final question for Taylor. All right. And, and Taylor, my question is, when you look at what the regulators, the government is doing with regards to CRA, you look at what Ginnie Mae is doing with regard to risk-based tiering of assets mm-hmm. and that risk-based capital ratio, is really the impetus for this to make mortgage banks be regulated the same as depository institutions? I would love to say yes. I can't defend my yes with much other than my gut instinct, but here's my answer, Jack. I think that banks have largely exited the mortgage business and independent mortgage bankers have replaced them. And so the whole world has looked around and kind of said, hey, the IMBs are doing the loans now, so we better take all the stuff we did with banks and apply it to the IMBs. That's kind of what I feel like is happening, although I don't know that I do a great job debating it with anybody. Because the truth is, a lot of the bank-like regulations and initiatives and oversight items are now being applied to IMBs. In fact, there are contemporaneous stories about IMBs going through exams, when I say exams, regulatory reviews, by the very state agencies that monitor banks that were applying CRA requirements over Mm -hmm. a year ago when there was no CRA requirement that existed, Mm -hmm. right? So on an anecdotal basis, we've seen regulators treat IMBs like banks. And listen, I'm not saying there isn't good reason to because we are now doing the majority of the lending. But I absolutely think that if you're going to do that, you need to look at the regulations. It's not one size fits all. You can't just take all the regulations that applied to banks and apply them to IMBs. You got to say, okay, what was the point of this regulation? Now, how do we make it fit for a privately owned mom and pop style business that has their own personal capital at risk, has no implicit government guarantee, has no access to the federal funds rate, has no access to the federal home loan banking system and no FDIC insurance. So you have to change. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have new oversight or different oversight, but it has to be based on what makes sense for that business model. And certainly applying bank regulations that came out of the 70s that were based on things that were happening in the 50s to today's IMB makes no sense. So true. Just heard from one of our listeners, David Crugnali in Southern California. He says, man, I really love the podcast. It's very valuable information. I know his political leanings. He says, I'm probably not against all the regulations out there. But he says, it reminds me of a proposal years ago in New York where the state regulars wanted to make it a regular requirement for borrowers to give consent for servicing transfer. Then someone pointed out, well, that'll raise the 30-year fixed rate by a quarter point, and the proposal was dropped. I think that's the, the logic. I think it's what are the unattended consequences? And all the regulators 
leaders. And I know we have a lot of you listening to this podcast. We're grateful to have you listening to that. That is such a point. Yes, we're going to have Taylor back. We're going to have Jack on here, and we'll debate this some more. Thank you so much, Taylor, for your generous amount of time you've given us. I tell you, man, I really love listening to you and encourage others to give you voice. And I hope you'll be on many podcasts. Thank you, sir. Love to. Thank you. All right, everybody, that wraps it up. Next week, we're going to have on the podcast, Richard Toma, who is with The Money Source, going to be here with us. I talked to him earlier. It's going to be a wonderful interview. You'll enjoy it. Also, I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors, Banastra, CMLA, Mortgage Lenders, Lenders One, as well as Accelerate, Mobility, MMI, Mortgage Market Intelligence, Modex, MBA, Knowledge Coop, and the Mortgage Collaborative, and SnapDocs, our newest sponsor. Love them. Anyway, thank you so much for being here. Tell others about the podcast. Share this podcast. A lot of great content in here today, and I'll be talking about it on Friday. So come to the Greater Association of Mortgage Lenders in Houston's Friday Luncheon. You'll hear me expound on this even more. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great week. Thank you. You've been listening to Licken on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Licken of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us next week, and thanks for listening.